Hello, Gates. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> I changed it up. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Have You Ever Heard Of, the history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> and warning, this episode contains feminism. <gasps> oh, the violence and swearing you've had. <laughs> yeah, well, so you had violence and swearing, now you've got feminism. <laughs> um, how are you? Uh, yeah, not too bad. I nearly cried in a meeting today but other than that it's pretty good <laughs> i love that that's my favorite but you're just like do you know what you guys all suck i'm just gonna cry um i don't think quite today but just because i was so stressed that it wasn't in a meeting it, so basically we've come back to um we're going back to working in the office yeah. well i work in a library so in the in the library so what's happened is the general office that collects all our mail was also come back which means i was greeted with like a pile half my size of mail to open jeez because that's one of my jobs that's opening all the mail and it's mainly like journals and stuff yeah um and sometimes like a couple of we get some letters from people who don't have email addresses for some bizarro reason um <laughs> and i have to like call them and oh it's just long anyway um so I opened all that mail and just got paper cuts and I was like, oh, I was not having a good day. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. Paper cuts are the worst. They're so, like, they sting. Not as like... bad as cardboard cuts. Oh, yeah. But that's just like a, that's level just a harsher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's just a boss paper cut, a boss level paper cut. Bowser paper cut. Yeah, they also had a committee meeting today. Some, like an in-person committee meeting. And I was like, what are you doing? Well, like, the higher-ups, and they're, like, cloaks, and they're, like, Harry Potter cloaks. They weren't wearing cloaks, no, it wasn't. Damn it. <laughs> it wasn't a Not ceremony. It. <laughs> it was um, just, like, a, a committee, and I was like, what are you doing? Why are you all in the room together? This is why there's, like, have you seen this going back up, the the R rating? Like, oh, yeah. We're going to get a second wave, I'm 100% convinced. Yeah, probably. But I don't know. I don't think people can take another lockdown. It's not gonna. It's not gonna work. As long as the lockdown doesn't happen till I move into my new flat, <laughs> and I'm perfectly happy to have another lockdown. <laughs> when you got the space to enjoy it. Yeah, just be running around <gasps> my garden like. Meh. It's quite funny that the Tories are blaming it on young people at the moment. Well, I mean, all the kind of like crazy anti-mask conspiracy theorists I've seen—they've all been like middle-aged plus. Yeah, exactly. Why don't people like wearing... I don't get the mask thing. Like, it's not really that big a it's deal. It's not inconveniencing you like, at all. <laughs> people think it's just like the government are trying to like control them by making them wear like a mask. It's like, it's not very good control though, is it? Like, it's not, it's not really no. going to achieve much. Well, you know, it's the, the payoff... I don't know if it's called the payoff paradox, but the payoff thing where it's like a small amount of effort for a larger payoff. Yeah. So if you actually explain to someone like the payoff is so much bigger... Then actually, they use it. I think it's um, is it might be Thomas Aquinas who used it to explain why you should like believe in God because it's only really like, a small thing that you can do to like get a really big payoff if it actually <laughs> like exists because then you get to like live in heaven for eternity. But it's but, the dogma though, that makes it difficult. But then I'm like, no, Thomas, you haven't got me that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm 
So it's, it's a lot of effort. Actually. Yeah, it's all the crap because in the Bible. You can't like <laughs> pretend to believe, really, can you? Because he'll be like, you get up there and you'll be like, look, I went to church. And he's like, yeah, but you were faking. <laughs> yeah, so... exactly. I mean, like if it's an all-knowing deity, then they're going to know you're faking. You can't cheat an all-knowing deity. Exactly. They'll know. So I might as well just get on with my sin. Yeah, Let me get might... on with my sin. Or, you know, follow a good deity like Sigma. All hail Sigma. Um, tell me one thing that you've watched or read or listened to this week. I started watching uh, the new series of uh, The Boys. Oh, yeah. I've heard a lot of people tell me I'd like it. It's good. Yeah, it's really good. A nice twist on uh, the superhero thing. But then again, everything's a twist on the superhero thing now. Yeah, All superheroes no, are a like, twist on the superhero. Yeah, superheroes anymore. <laughs> so. no, I don't know, Wonder Woman 84 is coming out soon. And that that's pretty... It's the only DC one that's decent, so... I have been watching police interrogations on YouTube. <laughs> I just... love it. I, I just love it so much. Like watching, um, there's a one YouTube channel, I think I told you about, it's called JCS Criminal Psychology. And basically he like pauses the video and says, and this is the technique they're using. Oh, wow, that sounds And that's why they do this. And they're, and the innocent people will say this, whereas guilty people will say this. Oh, wow. And it's really interesting. Like, some of them, I don't know how some people think that they're going to get away with it. They're, like, so blatantly <laughs> guilty. Like, this one woman, like, they, you know when, um, this is all American and Canadian, but you yeah. know when, like, you hire a hitman or whatever? Yeah. So this woman, like, went to her ex-boyfriend and said, I want to like, kill my husband, let's hire a hitman. So he goes to the police, good man, and is like, look... This chick's crazy. She wants to hire a hitman. So they send in like an undercover policeman to yeah. pose as the hitman. And they have her on video being like, look, here's some money, kill my husband at this time in this place. And they fake the whole thing and tell her her husband is dead, take her into the interrogation room, and then like get her to like lie loads. Because like, they want you to like lie. Yeah. And then reveal that, you know, Jigs up, we got you in tape, and she still goes for not guilty. And it's like, look, we oh, have you on video hiring a hitman. <laughs> like, how do you think you're going to get away with this? Wow, that, yeah, man. So, yeah, I like watching police interrogations <laughs> while I'm doing my cross stitch. So, that's something that's I do. That's a nice now. mix. So, shall we talk about histoire? Histoire. Let's do it. Like, Let's talk about history. Um, Who's your person? This is someone you've heard of, but. Um, I'm going to talk about them anyway. Uh, have you ever heard of Mary Wollstonecraft? Of course I've heard of Mary Wollstonecraft. She's so cool. Um, most of you have probably heard of her, but what's interesting is maybe you might have a slight misconception about maybe what her work was about or don't know about her personal life. So let's get into it. So um, she was born in Spitalfields in London. 1759, another London girl. Um, Her parents were Elizabeth Dixon and Edward John Wollstonecraft. So she came from like a middle class, kind of well-offish family. Her grandfather had been a silk weaver and her father tried to, with his inheritance, like live like gently um, by buying farms and stuff like that, but it kind of failed. And her father was like an awful drunk and an abusive and oh basically drank away all their money and then left when he died left the family 
um, mother, Mary, and six siblings, like, in a really bad position. There's a story where, as a teenager, Wollstonecraft used to have to lie outside the door of her mother's bedroom to protect her from her father. Oh, man. Yeah, so he was really bad. Um, Her mother was quite uneducated and became quite self-absorbed as the oldest daughter mary used to look after her sisters and protect them from the father so mary was the second oldest her brother edward was older than her he actually had like a much better school than she did she only had a couple of years and he had like he was the favorite she knew from the beginning that he was gonna get like the inheritance the family fortune um and she wouldn't get anything and i guess this kind of from a young age, showed her how unequal life is for women. Yeah. And this must have really influenced her like early on. In her younger life, she had two friendships that really shaped her. One was with Jane Arden. Um, they read books together and she attended lectures with her by her father, Jane Arden's father. She yeah, really liked the intellectual atmosphere of that household, so she escaped her kind of abusive household to go there. Uh, Wollstonecraft wrote to Jane Arden once, I have formed romantic notions of friendship. I am a little singular in my thoughts of love and friendship. I must have the first place or none. Which is basically like, either I'm your best friend or Or not your friend. (laughs) (laughs) Which I kind of rate. It's like, do you know what? It's either me, like, full on or nothing. But how do you, like, how do you confirm a position like that? They could just say, yeah, sure, you're my best friend, and then... In their head. Wow. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not God. <laughs> you can't know. Maybe I could tell Thomas Aquinas anything. You would have to believe me. So what sort of uh, uh, like a class, I guess, was... Uh... Mary? Yeah. You were the same, like, middle class. Middle class. Even though like... her father was, like, kind of drank away their money, they were still middle class. Yeah. Um, But on that, actually... The... The wonders of the British class system there. Yeah. Mary and her sister did actually have to work to support themselves and their family later on. Um, But she does have one more friend I want to mention that's Fanny Blood. Some of you might have heard of her. Who Wollstonecraft credited with opening her mind. Which I like. So, she first of all worked as, for a while, as a lady's companion. um, Which is kind of like, you know, you sit with them, you read to them, you know. It's not like a maid it's like a hired friend. <laughs> um, which I, I kind of want one. Yeah, that's like... actually uh, sweet. Hang on, I, was it for like an older per- like woman or just, just Yeah, anyone? yeah, it'll be like okay, an older then. lady. She and her sisters tried to actually open a school in Newton Green, which is near where we both live. Ah, um, yeah. But it failed. She wasn't a very good teacher, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, she worked for a year in Ireland as a governess. And this is where she learned about education of like more aristocratic families because it was obviously of a higher class family. And that got her thinking about education, especially to girls. Um, but then Mary managed to get a job writing um, for the analytical review about everything and anything from travel to satire to politics, etc. So that's her first writing job. Nice. Okay, so... She published her first work, as in her first, like, no- not novel, what am I saying, book, that's, that's the word, <laughs> book, um, in 1787, which was called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. Here she set out 
how she thought that education of girls was superficial and focused on things like sewing and singing and didn't prepare women for actual life. Yeah, back then it was... Especially hard life, like hard times. Yeah, essentially then, like, education for women was basically educating them how to be a wife, which is just awful. Yeah, be a wife, but also be, like, genteel. Yeah. Because if you were anything but aristocratic, you would get very little education. So she basically said that the mind is shaped by education, which I totally agree with. Absolutely. Popular people had a big influence on her. One of them was our good old friend John Locke. Ah, Lots of 18th century men and women were influenced by Locke. Basically, he is what we call an empiricist. For those of you that don't know that word, it means that things are experiences, learn experiences, sensory information is what teaches us. We're not born with like inherent knowledge. So education is very important to Locke. However, he always took the position of kind of like a more idealistic... Well, out of the out of him and his greatest rival, anyway, more idealistic uh, political view. He does say that reason is the capacity we're given to shape those experiences. So we're born with reason, and we kind of use reason yeah. to shape our experiences. People can change by their education and non-education, and by changing education, you can make people more reasonable. Yeah. So some like um, All good principles. Hume would say that um, some decisions you make aren't like reasonable but they're perfectly normal like I'm going to scratch my nose I didn't like reason that it's not like I needed reason to make that decision it's just like a response to something so reason is more on the kind of intellectual side of decision making okay so Mary said that reason is actually given to us by God she was very religious but I guess at that time, people were. It's not like she was like more religious than everyone else. Yeah, it was yeah. just like kind of the norm. But we need to fulfil it. We are the ones that need to fulfil the reason. So we need to give status to reason. It's not like God can make us work with reason. So she's in London after coming back from Ireland. And she joins the circle of rational dissenters, which is like religious people who talk about like reason. Um, e.g. Richard Price is one of the names there. Um, it was a very important movement in the Enlightenment. Basically, it ha- uses religion as the foundation to reason, if that makes sense. So they believe in universal benevolence, that the world is built on like a brotherly love, and it, they support revolution. So like the American Revolution, and then later on the French Revolution. So that's the kind of sphere that she's in right now. Basically, anything that goes wrong is to do with, like, rationality going wrong, or irrationality. Um, It's kind of, like, almost like a humanist point of view. Yeah. Thinking about it now. Like, even though she's, like, religious, you almost think that maybe nowadays she would be a humanist. Yeah. A kind of, like, non-interventionist god. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you have to... He's given you capacity to do something, but you have to actually do something with it. Yeah. Um, by the 1790s, she was probably one of the most famous female political writers in Europe, and definitely in England, and we will look at how she got there. So, she had this idea of rights, in inverted commas, and it's very powerful to her, and also people are very afraid of the word rights. It suggests that we can remake political society on a political basis, 
And this is what the French were doing with their revolution. So it was a society based on natural rights of people. And if you know anything about the French Revolution, they had like a charter, is that what we're calling it? Of na- yeah, natural right. rights. Yeah, yeah like a, a kind of thing that said, these are our natural rights. Um, kind of like, I guess, the human rights now. Yeah. So she partly came to fame from a reply she did to Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. So Burke says that it's madness and it's all going to end very badly, (laughs) basically. Oh, Burke. But she critiqued his defence of the French aristocracy in her vindication of the rights of men. Um, And, okay, he was kind of right that it did end kind of badly, but not in the way that, you know, he said it would. Yeah. Also, it did make a lot of progress. I mean, it helps. It helped history along along its path. Along its meandering, <laughs> twisty, bendy path. Um, she was a fierce defender of the French Revolution in its early years. Not so much when it became like all gallant, choppy, heady, offy, but yeah. like more in its early years. Certainly not Napoleony. But then, obviously, her most important work, which I have in my hand, look, visual aids, um, a vindication of the rights of women, which was published in seventeen ninety two. So, what is this book all about? She, in her words, the civilised women of the present century, with a few exceptions, are only anxious to inspire love when they ought to cherish a nobler ambition. So basically she's saying, like, don't follow all these, like, singing and sewing things. Go and learn other stuff. Like, there's more important stuff for you to be learning about. Dude. Come on. <laughs> Um, (laughs) The underlying message here is to prepare women for a spiritual destiny. She takes many ideas from the rational um, descent and from Christian ideas, and she basically wants women to uneducate themselves about what women should be. So they need to, like, wipe themselves clean. Like, I I don't need to be, like, this Love Island skinny, like, girl who... All I want is, like, a boyfriend and, you know, to, like, embroider. I need to also, I need to learn other stuff. I need to learn what men are learning. Or even, like, more important stuff. It doesn't really talk about things like civil rights or property or political rights, which is what I think people misunderstand about Wollstonecraft. Because she thinks if we reform society, then those things are, like, implied. Like, they'll be implicit. So... Yeah, if we, like, have, like, equal education, then those things will come with that. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I think that makes sense, Like a reform too. So, from below, essentially. Yeah, the, argument, the core of her argument is diagnosis of the current state of female manners. Now, I don't mean, like, table manners. I mean, like, how women are doing stuff. Yeah. Mainly, she writes about middle-class women and how women have accepted the ascribed social identities and like how women can take ownership of themselves this would allow them to perform a civic role in society so it kind of like comes with hand in hand with that yeah and the highest duty one has is to oneself and this is a god-given duty so my highest duty is to make sure that i am educated and i am you know in control of me so which all makes sense it's almost like it sounds like, yeah, this we know this, but it wasn't ever said before. Yeah. She's the first person to say, hey, you know, we need to take responsibility as women to say that we want to be educated in a different way. 
Let's push on forward. To find that ikigai. Huh? Uh, they're like Japanese for uh, reason to live, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay, so the vindication of the rights women became an international bestseller. It was well received. It comes into a world where people have already been thinking some of these issues, but it kind of pushes them to the forefront. Not to say that everyone was an instant fan. Some women didn't read it because they thought that she was like a fanatic. I guess nowadays you'd call her like a radical feminist, but that's not really what she was. She's an egalitarian. And if you don't know what that word means, it basically means just equal rights for everyone. She's not saying like women should be above men and egalitarian beliefs that equal rights across not just women and men but also across class as well just everyone like all humans i guess back then like anyone who wasn't a tory was a radical essentially at that (laughs) time basically (laughs) anyone that did anything that wasn't um yeah well like i was just gonna say like some women commented on her clothing her appearance she wore like baggy unfashionable clothes and her hair was down around her shoulders and everyone was like oh that's a bit scandalous (laughs) scandalous <laughs> it's like you should see what i'm doing right now mate like so she was like a new metal <laughs> <laughs> yeah she would be a god <laughs> some would like concerned about the heaviness of egalitarianism basically and what this would do to their society oh the, then people in power yeah <laughs> yeah she wasn't anti-men it was a lot about women and how they have to change um women are exalted in their like inferiority and femininity is like an enlightenment fashion that is made by society. So like femininity is created by society and we could create it in a different way. We could like make femininity a whole different thing. It could be feminine to be like a badass. Yeah. I mean like the whole like past of uh, warrior women shows that like it has definitely been constructed like it's been formed over centuries to suit a she basically said there are no inherent female virtues which is totally true yeah we have created these as a society yeah they are social contracts god didn't like give us i mean i don't believe in god but you know she would say god didn't give us like beauty and sewing you know yeah is just it's created by society and she also said that women are human beings first and foremost and i just love that it's so good she also had this thing against uh, rousseau so oh really oh, interesting yeah kind of for and against rousseau it was this weird like thing so she admired some of his philosophy his attack on modern manners and his egalitarianism and his personal authenticity which is something she really loved like be an authentic person but his ideas on women are not so great yeah that's true um he believed that women are naturally inclined towards servitude they are submissive and governed by the needs of a man oh boy yeah his her first fiction which was called mary a fiction (laughs) in 1788 (laughs) was actually directed as a response to russo's work um also a lot of um the rights of women is directed to him like if you read it it says like Rousseau says at least once every two pages. <laughs> Mary called husbands overgrown children. <laughs> and that if Fair. men led women without women having any education, it would be like the blind leading the blind. Um, I'm going to read a quote from here which explains that real quick. And this is, I love this. Okay, so many individuals have more sense than their male relatives. And 
as nothing as nothing preponderates where there is a constant struggle for an equilibrium without it has naturally more gravity some women govern their husbands without degrading themselves because in intellect will always govern i just think that's like her in a nutshell Absolutely. intellect will always govern is what she thought unfortunately yeah, we know from our president that that's not always true yeah <laughs> okay um she was also very passionate and very sexual you should assume according to her a general a gendered identity when it comes to love and sex not before that so basically everyone is just a human being and then when it comes to love and sex then then you can be gendered um sexuality is like an obstacle to like to rational thinking so it should only be explored like after you're educated kind of thing okay um however <laughs> saying that she was a very sexual person well when i say she was very sexual i mean for the 1700s she's very sexual like yeah. now she would be like everyone would be like this is nothing but then it was like <laughs> scandalous so she had a few boyfriends and nearly a girlfriend as well nearly um her first man was uh, a man named henry fuseli which i found think sounds like a pasta yeah that does sound like a pasta which one is that <laughs> like so the bow tie pasta <laughs> um he was actually married um, they met in 1788. He was a writer and a painter. Of course he was. Oh, yeah. Um, and they were in love for about three years, or at least she was in love. Mary actually asked Henry's wife, Sophia, if she could, like, be in a menage a trois with them. <laughs> she could, like, move in with them and be his, like, spiritual spouse. And he and she said... And Sophia was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Mary did the only sensible thing that she could do at that time, and she moved to France. So the French Revolution is going on. She starts writing a history of the beginnings of the revolution, which is like actually really scary thing to do. If she'd been found out, then she might have actually been imprisoned and maybe had her head chopped off. So Really? I thought they would have wanted a a record. Especially someone who's on side. No. (laughs) No, like by the other side. Oh, okay. Because it's the beginning of the revolution. Oh, right, right, right. right, We haven't had the whole like a Robespierre coming in thing. Yeah. So she actually defended the September massacre in the first instance, but then she became a bit more alienated later on, like I said, when Robespierre like, comes in and starts weaving his... Goes to, yeah, goes to town on everyone, <laughs> including cool. his mates. So no, yeah, Robespierre <laughs> didn't actually wave his money around, as far as I know. <laughs> she met, um, when she was in France, an American captain named Gilbert Imlay, and fell in love and got pregnant by him. However, as the revolution grew more intense, he had to leave France on business and left her alone and pregnant. Oh boy. She's, nev- she's never going to see him again, is she? <laughs> she birthed and named the baby Fanny. Um, <laughs> well, we'll see. So, Gilbert then sent Mary on some sort of business mission to Scandinavia. Um... I've also I've heard that it was a business mission, but I've also heard it was her going to Scandinavia to get her stuff back from, like, he had gone there or something. Okay. So I'm slightly unsure about why she was in Scandinavia. Though you have, reading one of her works that's about to come up might help. Um, I make a case of just, like, your toothbrush is here, you should come get it. It's some sort of business. It's some okay. sort of business with these guys, these 
Americans. And when she got back to London, Emily had a new mistress. So oh, that was the end of that. Of course he did. So what does she do? Americans. Something incredibly rational and throws herself off a bridge into the Thames. Oh, trying to commit oh suicide. She was um, luckily rescued by a boat. Um, and then she wrote a book called A Short Residence in Sweden, Norway and Denmark about heartbreak and despair. Ah. Um, which is apparently beautiful and I need to pick it up. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. See, if I read that title, I would have thought it was a travel book about Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be like, oh, this sounds good. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> So let's see what, uh, what we've got to see in these countries. Oh, this is, uh, oh, 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 this is oh, very different. Oh, <laughs> so she resumed her writing and um, a guy called Joseph Johnson published some stuff by her. She writes about how much she loves Fanny, her daughter, and she sees motherhood as a female duty, which isn't necessarily oh, okay. contradictory. I think that's no. it just, she just means that, you know, it's part of what being female is. Yeah. Which, is, Which can be done I mean, in tandem we, with other things. Yeah, absolutely. I totally can. Um, so she then met William Godwin, philosopher and historian, who I would like to call the love of her life. Um, they actually met five years prior and then like had this argument over a dinner about religion and Voltaire. And he kind of like didn't like her very much. And then they met like five years later when she turned up at his house with a novel by Rousseau to discuss. And they fell madly in love. And I was like, what is this? Like, I need to well, read uh, this. I need this rom-com in my life. Well, anyone that's watched When Harry Met Sally knows that that's, that's, that's the best relationship, works, right? right? <laughs> start, you got to start with hate and then it turns into that's the greatest love the man has ever known. What? I love Nora Ephron films. I can't help it. Yeah, so do I, but... <laughs> I'm not going back on it. I'm not saying it's not problematic. <laughs> um, yeah, she influenced him and he influenced her. His communism kind of impacted on her. Um, they wrote erotic letters to each other. And she got pregnant again. Then she got married, um, which a lot of people were surprised at because like other people thought that she had married Imlay, but she actually hadn't. Um, because obviously, because she had a kid with him, everyone assumed that they were married. Oh yeah, but Back they in weren't. Days. So they got married, but they actually lived in separate houses. Um, Gotta have some space, yeah. Which sure. is like this whole like Tim Burton, Helena Bonham Carter yeah. thing. <laughs> um, that's where they got it from. Uh, so on the thirtieth of August, seventeen ninety-seven, Mary gave birth to their child. Although the delivery initially went well. The placenta broke apart during birth and became infected. Childbed fever was common and often fatal occurrence in the 18th century, and Mary died on the 10th of September. Mm. Oh boy. I need to do people that don't die in their 30s, because I've like done so many people that are so young when they die. Like Next time I'm going to do someone who's like 100. I'm going to find like, the oldest possible person. So, Godwin was absolutely bereft, and he decided to publish memoirs of her life. He believed in truth-telling at all costs, and he tells about her first child, her affairs, her suicide attempts, and published her on unfinished novel the wrongs of women and this was kind of like scandalous because people didn't know she had a child out of wedlock like they thought that she had been married to emily um you know this this novel was totally different to anything else they've read of hers uh, all her like sexual affairs even though she only had like three boyfriends which now is like completely normal <laughs> everyone was like a shock horror 
But the thing is, like, in those times, everyone was doing the same thing, but they just all pretended to, like, find it shocking. Like, it <laughs> yeah, was just a strange really? kind of, like, surface shock. thing. I, seriously, I... <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, so despite that, um, she is admired and has become an icon. Virginia Woolf completely admired her. She, her work has influenced radical circles, socialists, and charterists in America. And then, obviously, the suffrage movement, she became a massive icon. They had like banners of her with her face on it. Her second daughter was named uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin and became a slightly successful author <laughs> under her married name. Mary Shelley. Boom. It's so sad. One of my favourites. Got to know each other. And just in case anyone is out there thinking, why are we talking about this? We have equality. Let's just say, it's 2020 and it took us this long to get to 99% world suffrage. In 1930, it was only 18% of the country's and in 1990, it was only 96%. They still can't vote in Brunei or in Vatican City. In oh, 2019, the gender pay gap in the UK was 17.3%, which means that women, on average, were paid approximately 83 pence for every pound men were paid. Women are twice as likely to experience domestic violence than men, and there are only 34% women MPs in the House of Commons, and there have only ever been two women prime ministers. So if you don't think we need Mary Wilson card for Ninja Check, you're man privilege. Damn right. And that is feminism. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's where we're oh, I guess there's always like a backlash against it but I mean like there seems to be like a super backlash against it at the moment and I just don't really understand because that equality has not been reached yet and anyone it's that thinks reached, it's gone no. too far is just basically a bit of an arse obviously I have it really good here <clears throat> at, you know the UK is one of the better countries to live but it's not like oh, yeah, even the top one you know if you look at the Scandinavian countries or Australia and New Zealand they're like much higher up um, yeah. than here is and obviously, I'm so lucky that I don't live in other places where, you know, they only got the very like last year or they can't leave the house without their husband or father or brother or, no, that's you know, committing adultery is illegal and yeah. you can get stoned. Like, it's there are all sorts of things that I'm really glad that, you know, that I live here. And I think it's really important that we remember that feminism isn't just for the country that we live in. It's for, like, humankind everywhere and I think that's what Mary Wollstonecraft is really like her women are human beings first is like the most important thing we can take from her in my opinion absolutely and education as well is so important we need more women in STEM subjects we need more women only if they want to they don't have to I'm not saying like we have to have 50 50 I'm not saying that but I'm saying like we should promote STEM subjects because Having taught maths in the school, it's seen as a as a male subject, and you have girls who are like, um, I had one kid who didn't want to be like in the top set for maths, even though she was better than like everyone else, because she would have been the only girl on that set. Yeah, that's really savage. And it's like I don't want it to be seen as like a male subject because they're yeah. like, you know, you can still be amazing at maths and be a girl, or amazing engineering or mechanics or science. And yeah, if you are good at those subjects, you should embrace it. It shouldn't be like shied away because you can really see like when you get to A level, the people who are taking those subjects is really divided. Yeah, exactly. It's just a case of opening up the world to every individual to chase exa- like whatever dream it is they want to chase. Yeah, exactly. Surely that's um, an important thing to do. My dad took ballet when he was in school, so 
Damn right. Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's my Wollstonecraft. Oh my god, it's something really funny to tell you guys. So my boyfriend's out right now at football practice. <laughs> right, so he texts me like half an hour in. And I was like, hey, why aren't you practicing football? Like, what? why are you texting me? And he was like, I am at practice, but nobody brought a ball. <laughs> That's amazing. And so I was like, what? How did you... <laughs> you guys know that you're a football practice, right? <laughs> like, how how are you practicing? Is it... So, like, up until this point, has someone just, like, just by chance remembered a ball? And then, like, I this... I guess so. I don't know, like, I, I assume that usually the coach would bring a ball. But maybe... Oh, because it is, like, an arranged thing. It's not yeah, just, like... Yeah, because he's in, just... like, a team now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't scored that. a goal at the weekend. A whole really goal. nice. Yeah, I think I might have scored. And I hit the post the other time. I went and watched him for a little bit. That's a, that's good enough. Eh? It's better than what I can do. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrible at football. Terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm not too bad at like running around and kicking it, but I couldn't play in like a team. I'd be too scared that it was gonna like hit hit my face. The money I maker. Even... <laughs> I can't even kick a ball. She straight, says like... on radio. <laughs> I think you have to kick the side your foot I don't really get it like no you can kick it happening. from the front you just have to like I don't know be, we is it not the side <laughs> see I don't even see it I don't even know the theory yeah. I know none of the theory theory is the right word I don't know you like <laughs> I'm a sword fighter what can I say that's all I can do I'm gonna I'm gonna take up um, kendo I think so I can add another sword fighting nice. skill to my repertoire. I want to go axe throwing. Should we go? Yes, definitely. I watched the video though, where like no, don't someone, do like, it. Where someone like, it, like it. yeah, and it bounced off the floor, and like just it missed their head by like inches. But well, I, I think that we'll be better at it than her. Yeah, hopefully. Ho- yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, what are you gonna do this evening while Charlotte's away? What are you gonna eat? Dinner? I'm gonna eat a steak. Because oh, my, yeah. my mum gave me a steak. Oh, thanks, Dad's mum, for giving him <laughs> a dead <mummy> steak. meat. <laughs> I'm gonna make just, like a pasta, pesto, feta, spring. That's a nice thing. Yeah, tasty. I mean, I just want to go sleep. Yeah, that's how I'm feeling. I'm gonna eat my steak, watch the boys, probably drink some more wine to erase that meeting from my mind, and then I'm gonna go to bed. Yay. And then we'll have to do it all again tomorrow because that's life, innit? That's life. Working that's how it works. Yeah, I you know um, when you think a celebrity's dead, have you ever had this? Where you're like, uh, they're dead, right? And then so the other day I was like, Dolph Parton's dead, right? And everyone was like, No, no, she's <laughs> she's still working nine to five. And I was like, Wow, who else is like not dead that I thought was dead? Do you know what I, I mean? I don't think I've done it that right. I've always done it the other way around where I haven't realised someone's dead and then people tell me I'm like, What? No, no, what? This is such a shock yeah, that they that... died five years ago. <laughs> is it? I can't remember which comedian does it. It might be PK that's like, there's only two reasons your mum will wake you up. One, it's snowing. And two, a celebrity has died. <laughs> like, who's died? Is it snowing? What? <laughs> um, and on that jolly note, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at... Have you ever pod? And spread the word. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>